Today the sermon is on the Beatitude, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So let's go ahead and just actually read up to that point. Um, it's pretty fast. So today, um, so the scripture reads, Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. And blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. And here we are, we are on the sixth beatitude. And that will be the one that we deal with today. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Of course, this is a pretty incredible one. Um, I can't believe I was trusted to talk on this one. Um, before I say too much, I should ask if anybody, anybody has seen God personally, clearly. <sighs> you know, I just figured I should ask, like, that person will surely be more qualified and won't need much, <laughs> much um, preparation, I'm sure, if you've seen God. Um, so, um, before we go too far, let's start with our review. Some of the things that Pastor Brandon has been sure to lay the foundation. Some important truths about the Beatitudes. First off, um, let's remember that they have a logical order to them, right? Um, therefore, just as it's illogical to ascend a ladder by trying to jump to the top of it, it's equally illogical to attempt seeing God without practicing the previous five steps on the Beatitudes. Mm -hmm. So, we start with poverty of spirit, which leads to the mourning of sin, which then leads to becoming meek, which then starts, then causes us to hunger and thirst for righteousness. And in that hunger and thirst, we then begin to become merciful towards our neighbor. And finally, we arrive at this vision of God. It's not a small journey, and, um, and we have now ascended pretty close to the top, and we learn that there's a whole new way of seeing in store for us, that you can see God. However, it all starts with the much smaller step, the steps of becoming humble, repentant, which recreates us so that we can work our way up to this advanced and really glorious state. To think seeing God is even offered to us is pretty crazy, right? Like, Christ isn't talking about going to heaven after you die and then seeing God. <laughs> He means you can be alive and well on this earth and see God as if you're already in heaven. This is obviously advanced and we're certainly leaving the realm of realistic expectation and entering into more the realm of childlike faith. Nonetheless, this is the promise of our good God that wants his creation to know him. And this experience of seeing God is only a prerequisite for becoming a peacemaker 
and fully serving God's will. Pretty astounding. This is grand and marvelous. And I know that it's not like actually required that we attain like this great height in its fullness, right? I mean, at least not in its fullest sense. I mean, this experience is reserved for the highly committed and the incredibly mature. Just think about the biblical stories where someone gets to see God. We're talking about the greatest men that we know, Moses, Daniel, Isaiah, the greatest. And so it's reasonable to feel dwarfed by such a calling, right? Um, However, please realize that every Christian can attain to some degree of seeing God. And Christ is letting us know that this is a very, very desirable state. And while we never, we may never wrestle with God and live like Jacob did, we can see the beauty of creation more clearly by submitting to the process of purifying our hearts. Something else we should review is the meaning of being blessed. In the Greek, Brandon has told us that the word is makarios. This isn't a verb that describes some economic exchange system. You aren't trading your prayer for two ounces of blessed grace and calling it a fair deal. No, it's more than that. Makarios is an adjective. And scholars say it carries a lot of good baggage referring to the state of the Garden of Eden where God walked with Adam and Eve himself. It reminds us of him declaring that all of creation is inherently good. It's fruitful and it's full of satisfaction. Thus, since it's an adjective, this means that when you become pure in heart, then you become a blessed person. Furthermore, this blessing becomes so elementary to your life that you simply see life in a new makarios or blessed type of way. You see God. It's as if scales fall from your eyes and you find yourself already in heaven while still on earth. If only I could speak from experience, right? (laughs) That would be awesome. Um... But I think a really good scriptural example of what this vision is like is depicted in Psalm 104. Um, I'm not sure if any of y'all have read it. Whenever I pray it personally, I feel a little bit lost. I feel like, like I am being dwarfed, like I can't participate in exactly the way this guy looks at creation already. Um, The psalm shows the whole world is serving and obeying God. It states the clouds are his chariots and that God causes all the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate. Apparently, God plants every tree in the forest and waters them each by his own hand. (laughs) It's like, it's phenomenal. And the same is true about creatures. I quote, everything looks to you, God, to give them food in due season. And this includes us. But we don't see it that way, do we? Right. <laughs> this is exalted 
and it's something that we are called to grow into. Um, and it is that we are blind. We are blind to God. And we see it more realistically, right? That money obviously comes because I work, and food comes from farmers, and everything gets collected at Stater Bros, where I can go and spend my hard-earned cash and get fed, right? I mean, that's at least if I want to cook today. There's easier ways of doing it, right? <laughs> and so I... I don't think don't think that I'm saying the world doesn't work this way, right? Like there, there's, the world does work that way. You, you go to Stater Bros. I'm not denying that. <laughs> um, rather, this is only the most mundane and basic perspective. It possesses such a small percentage of the truth that we may as well be blind in comparison to the whole truth. See, the Bible plunges far deeper into reality, and it shows that reality, like real reality, in its fullness, is God's hand of providence somehow works within everything. That's Psalm 104, and that's seeing God. King David, a man with a pure heart, continues in this perspective in 1 Chronicles uh, chapter 29, verse 12, he says, Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. And your hand, and in your hand is power and might, and it lies in your hand to make great and strengthen everyone. That means, like, the entire economic system is under God's control. And all money mysteriously flows from the hand of God to the pockets of each person. <laughs> God even strengthens the farmers and nourishes their land so that they can succeed in producing food. We hear from the apostles that we should submit to the government because even apostate governments don't have any authority that they haven't received from God. The apostle James sums it up very well when he says, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. So just think about how Macarius blessed that perspective really is. We see in Christ that God is happy to sacrifice himself as a free gift of salvation to everyone. How wonderful it is to see God. To believe that the king of the universe is abundantly good and perfectly good. And according to James, he perfectly tends to your needs. It isn't surprising that Christ will tell people later on in the Sermon on the Mount to not be anxious for anything. Rather, and forgive me if I'm still driving this point to ridiculousness, um, but your heart should um, have every reason to swell with thankfulness towards God as you come into Stater Bros and out. Right? <laughs> <clears throat> to see this clearly as clearly true and to experience the peace and the love and the gratitude towards God is to be Macarius blessed because you see God everywhere. Surely there's much more to seeing God, but I think this is at its core. 
this is attainable by everyone. And I think it's enough to show the nature of becoming blessed. I hope you agree it's much more blessed to see this entire truth. That God is present everywhere and working for your good rather than the small grain of truth. So may God grant us this grace and may we participate as best we can. After all, every beatitude functions by participation, by the participation of God with mankind. Them working together. This beatitude is no different. God does not just appear out of nowhere for us to see which I intend to talk about more later. But no, there's a prerequisite of our own willpower being exerted to see God. It's empowered by the grace of God, I might add. But this prerequisite is having a good heart, and we have to exert ourselves for that. So what does this mean? In what way do we need to exert ourselves? Um, I think it's a pretty big ask considering the Bible itself proclaims no one is like even born with a pure heart, right? Um, we're talking about something big. So first off, I think we need to know what the heart actually is in the Bible. Unfortunately, this is a conversation that we have lost to time and it's somewhat muddled. When I think, when I ask like the standard modern person to point to their mind, where they think, right? Um, they will point to their brain. They'll point to their brain. However, um, there's a real clear source of this type of thinking. It's the Enlightenment. So this is the Cultural Revolution from the 17 or 1800s. And ironically, these are some of the least enlightening times mankind has ever known. Because they went and they totally marred the truth of the matter. Um, to just think, I mean, communism came from this time, right? I mean, it's a really muddled up time. So it's no shock that um, they also created materialism, which believes there's not a spiritual center for mankind. And this, sh this shifted the center of our mind from our heart to the brain. And why they did this, I, I don't fully know, but I'm guessing it's good to say because your brain is closer to your tongue, right? And that's where they hear all their words, and they love to hear their words, I think, by the end of it all. Um, so when I ask you to point to your mind, though, the biblical answer is to point to your heart. And so let's survey some scripture and clear this up. For starters, Christ says in Matthew 15, verses 18 to 19, I quote, But these things that proceed from the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, slanders, and these are all the things that defile the man. So um, actually an interesting thing is when it says, Out of the heart comes evil thoughts, the Greek word there is dialogismos. Does that sound, at least the first part, sound familiar? Mm -hmm. Dialogismos. It's dialogue. Um, the rest of these are things that can happen from impulsive desire, but Christ is describing those cases when a person can dialogue with themselves 
to make a plan for something, right? Whenever we have to really contemplate it out. And the creator of our soul says that that part of our mind comes from the heart. Luke chapter 6, verses 44 to 45, Christ continues the biblical teaching on the heart by saying, each tree is known by its fruit. Um, For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they pick grapes from a briar bush. The good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good. And the evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil. For his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. So your words and deliberations come from the heart. And we are talking about planning or the act of prolonged thinking. However, Christ introduces here that the heart is also a place of discernment. Um, This is the ability to choose between two or more things. He uses the metaphor of bringing something out of the treasure of your heart. And these treasures of the heart are what we would call values, right? That's a a more um, common word for us, values. And as you know, your values, though, shift and change as you think and gather information. And Christ asserts, however, that we should be careful because whatever you choose is a reflection of your truest self. And whether you are good or evil in your most inner self, and this is found in your heart. Um, The Apostle Paul continues this conversation um, with a different perspective. He says in Ephesians um, chapter 1, verses 8, verse 18 and 19, um, he prays that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, And what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe? He believes the eyes of your heart can see these tremendous things. Which is certainly interesting. Um, And what he's talking about is what's called the noose. And we'll discuss this a little bit later. It's a big idea, and it's somewhat vague in the Bible. It rests in all the Greek. It's hidden there. Um, And so for now, let's just be content to say that it was useful um, to the great Apostle Paul when praying for people and what he wants for them to see in God. And um, otherwise, there's abundant writings from the 3rd and even the 2nd century Christians unpacking this idea of the muse. They love to describe exactly what Paul was talking about and can really elaborate on it well. However, to avoid making this philosophical with them, um, let's just suffice to say um, that at the foundation of all your thinking, in your heart, is an attempt to perceive the true nature of everything. At the base of your thinking is an attempt to perceive the true nature of everything. And that's the eye of your heart. Okay? Um, A political conversation is a great example. Really easy example that we've all probably experienced. 
you talk to someone, you hear their ideas, and then you can obviously see what party they ascribe to, right? You hear their ideas, and you know, oh, you're conservative, you're liberal. You perceived the nature of what they were thinking. And this shows that thoughts become your perspective. Uh, many of you probably remember John of Kronstadt. Um, his name you all should know because Pastor Brandon likes to quote him and drop his name often. He can describe this whole process masterfully. So let's listen to him before moving on. He says, Do, not, do you not notice that our heart acts first in our life? And in nearly all of our knowledge, the heart sees certain truths. So we're talking about the noose. It starts with the noose. The heart sees certain truths and ideas before our intellect knows them. And whenever he says intellect, he talks about your ability to think, right? Your imaginations, your desires, um, the things you might say when you talk about this person or that person. That's your intellect. Is what he, that's what he means when he says intellect. So the heart sees certain truths and ideas before our intellect knows them. When knowledge is acquired, it happens thus. The heart sees it at once, indivisibly, instantaneously. This is what we would call intuition, right? Where we just, it clicks and we see it all, right? And afterwards, the single action of the sight of the heart is transmitted to the intellect and subdivided in the intellect into parts or sections. So we get the intuitive click, and then we divide it, and that's what we would call reasoning, right? Logic. That's whenever we're dividing things and we're compartmentalizing it, right? And, but what he says is the idea, though it was um, from the heart and analyzed in the intellect, the idea belongs not to the intellect, but it belongs to the heart. That is to the inner man and not to the outer, outer one. And so to summarize it, your heart perceives everything in an intuitive way. And to think about what the heart sees is to make it presentable to the world. So you, you, you deliberate, you plan, and that's making what the heart sees intuitively accessible to the outer man, to the social world, okay? I did my best. <laughs> so... Reflecting back on the Enlightenment now, um, what was lost? I think they burned the bridge between the heart and the intellect, your ability to speak out your thoughts and to imagine things. The enlightened, at least that's what they called themselves, I don't really agree, they only served to cast away traditional thinking from the Bible and leave us with something exceedingly more shallow. Um, if deep cries unto deep from our heart to God's, then they took us from the Pacific Ocean and left us in a swimming pool, right? Mm -hmm. Like, because they, they raced the heart. So, what's really disastrous about it all is that we haven't clearly realized how deeply connected our thoughts are to our sinning. As Christ said earlier, the thoughts of our hearts can actually, are actually what he said, defile us. 
Thus, watching over how we perceive and label things is the hinge that either guides us, guides our hearts into purity, or drags us into sin. The way you are thinking about me and anyone you share your life with is a reflection of how your heart indicates whether you will behave with godliness or worldliness. The potential for tragedy is evident if we consider that the opposite of this beatitude is true. That the impurity of our hearts lead us to blindness towards God. Therefore, let us take heed of the proverb which says, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flows the springs of life. And here we arrive to the true nature of spiritual warfare, right? Which is the battle for your mind and watchfulness over your heart. Our beatitude, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God as even the promise of blessing for every inch of victory we can achieve by the promise of the grace of God. We can't win without grace, but grace only comes to the willing participant. Therefore, what is it that we need to equip ourselves against in order to become purified? What was Christ saying defiles us? Of course, we know the answer is sin abiding in our hearts. The more we can cast it out of our hearts and abide in peace, the more we can work towards giving glory and praise to God as we perceive Him better. So sin is this strange infestation in the heart. And the human condition is that our hearts become disorderly by entertaining sinful thinking. Christ compares us to having a log immediately in front of your eye, and you can't see it all in such a state. So what does he say? Remove the log first. And then you can judge properly. He's even talking about thinking there, your judgments. Imagine a sinful heart is like the house of a hoarder. Nothing can be found when it's needed. Moreover, there's furniture, but it's completely covered with useless stuff. So there's nowhere to sit, and the inhabitant can't even comfortably host any friends or family. Not that the inhabitant would ever want someone to see the condition of their house, right? Thus, they spend their efforts trying to keep people away. The state of the sinful heart is similar except it's actually full to the brim with an obsession of the self. The sinful thoughts keep us stuck in thinking about ourselves, how to keep ourselves safe, knowing what our rights are, and remembering everything that other people owe us, right? Mm -hmm. Thus, the love of God and the love of mankind are nowhere to be found in our words or actions, because We've crowded it out of our heart. There simply isn't space to think that way. We may as well be blind to them, right? What a shame it is to be blindfolded with selfishness. This is an actually, this is an imitation of the devil and not Christ. For we know that Christ was the good shepherd and that he always focused on tending to and loving his flock. 
Therefore, we must push back and defy the selfishness. And we must become purified. We must become Christ-like. What happens as a, what happens as a person begins to purify themselves? Well, I think the same metaphor is very helpful. What is a hoarder supposed to do? They go watch a Marie Kondo video, right? And what does she say? The hoarder starts by picking something up and they ask themselves, am I blessed because of this? And 90% of the time, they say no. And they finally throw away the garbage in the trash. It's the same for us sinners with the thoughts of our hearts. We need to catch our thoughts, our desires, our imaginations that flow through our mind. And we need to ask important questions about them. Like, is this Christ-like? Is this blessed by God? Does this honor and obey Christ's commandments? Or is this rooted in faith, hope, or the love of God? And we have to be honest or this doesn't work. We don't want to be like the fool in Proverbs who calls evil good. Heaven forbid it, actually. But let us throw away these thoughts that continuously crowd our mind. Let us take out the trash and remove the blindfold from our hearts. With enough effort, you will find the home of your heart becomes gentle, becomes hospitable, suitable for acts of mercy, towards others. Such a heart can pray for its enemies with sincere love. Such a heart can give glory to God with sincerity. Such a heart can even host the presence of God and become the actual temple of God as it was supposed to become, full of divine joy promised by Christ. By the way, um, when it comes to the matter of labeling the thoughts of your heart. Um, and if you want to become really good at labeling and uprooting sin within your heart, then I highly recommend that you go to our church's podcast, which is just called Sermons from Calvary Chapel, uh, Twin Peaks, and scroll down to February 27th of 2020. I went and found this for you because I want to make it easy. This is good for you. Um, and listen to Pastor Brandon's seven-part teaching on the passion. Um, I think, I mean, I already see nods. Everyone agreed it was very good. It was very helpful. And when you have a clear framework and definitions for all the various types of sins that blind us, then it becomes easier to begin repenting of them, to be purified of them. And um, this will lead to a clean heart. And that means you're blessed because you see God. So... Anyways, um, to wrap up our hoarder analogy, when a hoarder has reformed and made their house clean and orderly, they never stop protecting the orderliness of their home. First, they learn general practices like weekly cleaning days and organization. However, they probably also stop going to garage sales. And discount stores as well. <laughs> they probably spend less time on Amazon. Or they quit going to Target and allowing themselves to buy two shirts they don't need, but 
it was two for one, and that's just too good of a deal to pass up, right? I mean, come on, I had to. No, you just stop going to Target. In the same way, we need to find these practices that help maintain the purity of our hearts, such as coming to worship, giving thanks to God for the things we have, giving money to the poor, confessing our sins in prayer, reading scripture daily. And by these acts, we remain watchful until the Lord comes a second time. After all, this is what we have been commanded to do. We need to watch for the second coming of Christ. But how can we do that if we are up to our waist in sin and almost completely blind to him? Watch for the second coming? Blind? You can't. So, um, yeah, we're going to dwell on that idea more, but first, I mean, we got to impose the question, why would you ever want to be blind towards God? I mean, he's the truest lover of your soul. He's the person, the person that sees God is blessed because they see how loved they are in him. Let us not deny ourselves any further, become pure, so we can see the love of God permeating our lives. I'm going to try to draw this sermon to an end by reflecting on what was just said, that it's a tragedy being blind to God. How much has the devil cheated mankind? He has drawn us into sin and deceived us, thoroughly deceived us into walking away from God disobeying him and ignoring him, even despising him. The devil has deceived our world into selfishness, which has become the source of so much despair. Meanwhile, God is prepared to show us exceeding grace, mercy, and love. And he can heal us and establish a peace unlike what the world can give. But our eyes refuse to gaze at him. And our hearts refuse to embrace him. I've been reflecting on the Gospel of John in chapter 1, verses 6 to 13. It starts by talking about John the Baptist, saying, A man came, one sent from God, and his name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light, so that all might believe through him. He was not the light. But he came to testify about the light. This was the true light that was coming into the world and enlightens every person. He was in the world, and the world came into being through him. And yet the world did not know him. They were blind to him. However, he even came to his own people, and his own people didn't accept him. Because they were blind to him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name, who are born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the ending sure is great. <laughs> However, I've begun wondering if 
Christians in current culture are at risk of imitating the Pharisees. And if that's even why that was put in there, they knew that we were at risk of imitating the Pharisees. Um, and they were the leaders of the people of God. They were the servants of his very own household. God set them aside to keep watch for his coming into the world. They kept the word of God and knew the Messiah would come to them first. And they were supposed to receive him as king and high priest with great joy and celebration because God is with us. And that was going to be their privilege. And this is the church's role today as well. Peter calls us a priestly nation uh, for the Lord's own possession. Revelations describes the church as sitting apart from the world and having a celebration while the Lord topples Babylon. Um, the world cries, but the church celebrates because the final judgment has finally come. Christ has come again. And it's a relief to have God make everything right. This will be our privilege. However, the worldly and the sinful won't even be able to stand it. And unfortunately, some people won't fill the role that God gave them. We know the story, and the Pharisees obviously didn't fulfill their role. They allowed the devil to deceive them, Therefore, they wrestled against Christ almost every opportunity they had. Can you imagine this becoming us? They heard and saw him commit miracle after miracle, yet somehow they still remained blind to the fact that he was God standing in front of them as was promised to them, as they were told to wait for. However, we know that if the pure of heart can see God, then it doesn't shock us that they missed it. After all, Christ described them by saying, Woe well, unto you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you, you clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but on the inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. He knew these things flowed from their impure hearts. And that no amount of miracles could ever convince them that he was the very God they were supposed to receive and celebrate. They were made to know God best, but the work of the devil and sin made them completely blind to him instead. The devil took their greatest reason for joy and turned it into their greatest humiliation. This is the danger of an impure heart. And it's why I say that it is truly blessed to have a pure heart. Let us remember that the Pharisees were told to wait for the first coming, but we have been commanded to wait for the second coming. The first coming will be starkly different from the second coming, but both will find people either prepared or unprepared. This is why Christ said in Luke chapter 2, verses 34 to 36, Be on your guard, so that your hearts will not be weighed down with sins like dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life 
that blind you, I might add. Because the day of the Lord will come on you suddenly like a trap. For it will come on all those who live on the face of all the earth. But stay alert at all times, praying that you will have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and stand before the Son of Man. And this can be your joyful moment, your privilege to stand before Him and say, Lord, I've been waiting for you and I'm prepared. You'll have a pure heart that He is already pleased with and satisfied with. You'll already have confidence in His love for you because you see Him, you know what He's like. You know how to stand in front of the judgment before your Father, not before a judge who knows you're guilty, right? You gotta see him. You gotta see him. <clears throat> know that we have every good grace and resource of God to be prepared for this day when we stand before Christ. Christ said, It is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom of heaven, which belongs to those living for the Beatitudes. He truly wants his second coming to be a celebration for every one of us. Therefore, he gave us this church. He gave us the commandments and scripture. He gave us prayer. He even gives you tribulations so that you can persevere and be washed of your worldliness and sin. That you can be, become sick of it because you go through a tribulation and you realize it's all because of sin. Sick of this. So ready to move on, right? <laughs> And in these places, scripture, prayer, the commandments, coming to church, he trains our hearts to love him. And his grace flows to us and purifies our hearts in these moments. And by purifying our hearts, we will be blessed with the ability to see why we are joyful in the presence of God. Because he loves us, right? Lord, may we have the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of the Lord. Even though the road is bumpy and we are far from purity of heart, may we be found persevering and pr protected by the mercy of the Father towards his children. Amen. <laughs>